Good morning. As TJ said, our scripture this morning is all of Joshua chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your bulletins. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very, fa very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, I am not Brian, and I'm not a pastor. I am an uh, intern here at Lake Baldwin, a seminary student at Reformed Theological Seminary. And um, I am filling in for Brian this morning, because I'm not sure if all of you are aware, Brian was unfortunately diagnosed with shingles a couple weeks ago and has been in a lot of pain. Thankfully, he's here. We're glad to see you. Um, so that, that is why you're seeing me this morning. I hope that it's not too much of a bummer for you. Um, let me uh, say a prayer, and then we can start. Father, thank you so much for another Sunday morning, another Sabbath day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. As the psalmist says, it is in your light 
that we see light. Apart from you, we cannot know your word or love you. We can't do anything that pleases you. So we pray that you would come down among us today. You would illumine our minds and hearts. You would help us to understand this passage that we might love you, love our neighbor, and love Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I graduated from college, I worked for a highly dysfunctional organization. We were a quasi-government agency, so we relied on state funding. And it just so happened that right before I got hired, the state of Florida announced that they were investigating us for embezzling state funds. We had a staff of about 50 people. And in a year, I saw 25 of those people leave. And if that wasn't bad enough, my boss, who by all accounts was beloved, she was a light in a very dark place, uh, she was blamed for a mess she didn't create and was fired only a few days after a family member of hers died. It was not pretty. The greatest loss in a dysfunctional environment like that is the loss of trust. Our leaders kept trying to give us projects. They kept trying to sell us on a vision. But we didn't trust that they had our uh, good in view. We didn't trust them at all. So we did not have any motivation to do anything they said. We did not want to work for them. Trust needs reasons. If you've ever tried to pick up a turtle, you know what trust is like. A, a turtle's head is out when it feels safe, when it feels no threats. But as soon as you walk up to pick it, to pick it up, that head is gone. Trust needs reasons. Trust needs reasons between spouses. Trust needs reasons between neighbors. Trust needs reasons between parents and kids. And if that's true on the human level, then how much more so is it true between us and God? But that raises an interesting question. Has God given us reasons to trust him? The answer is not self-evident. For some of us here this morning, that answer is anything but simple. Perhaps you came here this morning and you've looked at your life and you've wondered, how is it that anything out there, let alone this biblical God, could be trustworthy? Perhaps a long time ago you decided to give up on that question. You know, the Israelites asked themselves that question quite often as they wandered. Is this God trustworthy? And here in our passage, you best believe that they're asking themselves that again. God is bringing them into the promised land so that they can end their difficult 40 years of wandering and actually begin to settle down and have rest. But as one last stroke of irony, maybe, God brings them to the banks of the impossible Jordan River, the impenetrable Jordan River. He brings them to a river and asks them to cross where no human being could cross. You can just hear the, the Jews groaning as they're on the banks of the Jordan. But this is the miracle and the wonder of our passage. The Jews, without fussing, without grumbling, without any bitterness, actually cross. The Israelites, who habitually found reasons to distrust God, just read the first five books of the Bible. They surveyed the evidence, and they concluded that this God could be trusted. Something changed for them. Let's find out what. In our passage, we will see that because the Lord of all the earth is among us, we can trust the Lord. 
Because the Lord of all the earth is among us, we can trust the Lord. And we'll see that in three points. Trust his presence, trust his leaders, and trust his path. So we'll start with that first point, as we always do. One day I'm just going to start at the last point and reverse it, freak everybody out. Um, Let's look at verses 9 to 13 together. Would you turn with me there? And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flowing, from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in a heap. You may have noticed that I've skipped some verses here. I promise that's intentional. And in order to understand why, we need to do some, some contextual analysis. Jim preached last week on the story of Rahab, which is in chapter 2. In that story, the spies that are sent into the land, that chapter 2 ends with the spies sent into the land coming back and giving Joshua a glowing report. Everything is going as planned. Everything God has promised is happening. Nations, peoples are melting in fear. They are terrified at the power that is coursing through Israel. And so Joshua capitalizes on that momentum, that positive momentum, and he marches Israel out of Shittim and right up to the banks of the Jordan. But a problem emerges, one that appears physical but is actually spiritual. Verse 15 tells us that, tells us that Israel is attempting to cross the Jordan after the rainy season, during the harvest, that point of the year when the Jordan would have been its deepest and its widest. The Jordan at this point, people believe, would have been probably 90 to 100 feet wide and 3 to 12 feet deep. The stakes here are immense. No crossing means no conquering. No conquering means no land. No land means no rest. No rest means no fulfillment of God's promise. Now, our passage is artfully constructed. It leaves us in suspense for nine verses, wondering how Israel is going to solve this dilemma until Joshua comes and speaks to the people in, verses, in verse 9 through 13. And his solution is what I would like to call God in a box. Twice he calls God the Lord of all the earth. That's a title referring to the fact that God is the creator of every single being that exists. From the angels to the atoms, from the stars to the ants, all things belong to God. All things derive from God. All things are from him and for him. He is the infinite God. He is the great I am who is infinitely above and beyond everything that he has made. And yet, he's the Lord of the ark. The ark was a small wooden box made by the Jews at God's command, that contained the Ten Commandments and dwelt in the tabernacle, the heart of the tabernacle. Only the Levitical priests were allowed to carry it, and if they touched it, or if anybody approached it in the wrong manner, instant death. Why? 
Because though the Lord was God of all the earth, infinite and transcendent, he also dwelt in a special way in the ark. God made the ark a special bearer of his infinite presence because he loved Israel. He wanted to be near them, with them, among them. Lord of all the earth, this God is cosmic, transcendent, present to all things. He made the Jordan River. He does with it what he wills. He stops its flow with a snap of his fingers. Lord of the ark. This God is near, personal, present with his people. He does not just snap his fingers to stop the Jordan from flowing. He stops the Jordan by entering into its chaos himself. He is the God in a box. Now, what can we take away from these things? I have good news and bad news, and I'll start with the bad news. We have the exact same problem that the Jews had. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have had a trust problem. When the serpent appeared in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve, this is what he said. Do you see this lush garden? Do you see this paradise? It's all a mirage. It's fake. God doesn't actually want you to flourish. He just wants you to think he wants you to flourish. But in reality, he's keeping from you exactly what you need to be a full human being. So you need to go out there and take it. You need to take what's yours. Don't listen to him. Ever since they bought into that lie, we all have as well. This suspicion that God is holding out on us, that God is keeping from us the good things we need to be happy and full and complete, it affects us in every facet of our lives. But we especially see it in the area our lives, the shape our lives take in the area of obedience. A lack of trust in God's goodness is the source of both our sluggishness to obey and our quickness to disobey. A lack of trust in God's goodness is the source of both our sluggishness to obey and our quickness to disobey. We instinctively think God is an abusive father, that he uses his power and his authority to get us, to smush us down. And so we set ourselves against his will, or we find it really hard to, to muster up the motivation to do what he says. Because of the fall, it is a struggle to believe that God is as good as he says he is and that obedience to him is the path to life. It is not natural. We might have the same problem that the Jews had, but the good news is this. We have the exact same God that the Jews had. The Lord of all the earth is among us in a way that would have been unimaginable to Joshua or the Israelites. 2,000 years ago, a greater mystery appeared. Not the Lord of the ark, but God incarnate. God as he fully is, joined to a man as he fully was. John chapter one famously says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, through whom the angels and the atoms were made, moved into our human neighborhood and walked among us as one of us without for one second ceasing to be the Lord of all the earth. You see, God knows our hearts 
He knows how hard it is for us to trust him. He knows that we instinctively believe that he is out to get us, not to bless us. And so, in love, he comes down. He came down to Israel in the ark, and he commanded that it enter the river before anyone else. And he came down for all of us in the person of Jesus Christ so that God himself could enter into the spiritual chaos of our own making and defeat it. I don't have much experience with infants. Quite honestly, I prefer toddlers. That might be a spicy take. You can just do more with toddlers. I'm sorry. You can play with them. I don't have to defend myself, I hope. But I do know this. One thing I love about infants is getting them to smile at me. I love getting them to smile at me. I will make a fool of myself to do that when no one's around. The trick is persistence. Hopefully, if it's a happy baby, it doesn't take that long. You just smile at them and they'll return it. But if it's a fussy baby or has a, a, a strong will, it just takes time. You keep smiling, you keep smiling. Eventually, hopefully, they'll return that smile. Folks, God knows that we need to have reasons to trust him. So he comes down to us. Just like an adult smiling at a baby, God comes down to smile at us. He comes down to look each of you in the face and smile. He comes down to show his affection for us, to show that he wants good for us, not harm. So let's trust his presence. Because God is among us in love, we can smile back at him. I've talked at length about God's presence, but what's interesting in our passage is seeing how God's presence is mediated. The ark has to be carried by human hands. The people need to be led and organized by leaders. And so we need to look at our second point, trust his leaders. Look again at verses one to seven. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark and went before the people. The Lord said, Today I will begin to exalt you, Joshua, in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What we see in these verses is that everything the Israelites do is orchestrated by God, but mediated through human beings. Everything the Israelites do is orchestrated by God, but mediated by human beings. There are three levels of leaders in this passage. Officers, Levitical priests, and Joshua. In verse 2, the officers of the people act like good Presbyterians who care about order, and they go around giving instructions to make sure that it's not just chaos when they go to the Jordan. In verses 3 to 8, we see that the ark is to be carried in a certain fashion, in a certain way, by the Levites. And in verse 5 to 7, we see Joshua. 
Joshua encourages the people to expect wonders. He commands the priests to begin their descent into the Jordan Valley. They would have been a little higher up. It would have been a descent. And he receives a word from the Lord that he passes on in verses 9 to 13, as we already saw. Our passage is very concerned that we see God's presence being mediated. Israel is ordered and led by officers and Joshua. Israel follows the ark, which is carried by a special class of priests, and Israel listens to and obeys its leader. But to say that human beings did all of that is the same as saying that God did all of that. God has no need of human means. He could have just stopped the Jordan without any help. And yet he does not stop the Jordan until the priest's toes hit the bank. Which means that God uses human means, like leaders and ministers, to bring about divine ends. And what I want us to see from this passage is the beauty that can ensue when God's people submit to one another in loving trust. When God's people submit to one another in loving trust, beauty can be had. The officers come and give instruction, and the people listen. The priests are told what to do. They listen. Joshua hears from the people, I'm sorry, hears from the Lord and instructs the people. Both he and they listen. There's no grumbling, no suspicion, no competition. No one assumes the worst of the other. And what happens? A miracle. God himself comes down among them. I want to make this very specific for us at Lake Baldwin Church. Our church has undergone a lot of change. We have changed buildings. We have changed our senior pastor. We also have a lot of needs, financial needs, staff needs, leader needs with our elders, community needs. I can say with confidence that most of us here have opinions on every single thing Lake Baldwin does and is, on our worship, on Brian's preaching, our location, our outreach ministry, our community life. And I can also say with confidence that at one point or another, perhaps even right now, LBC has let you down or maybe even frustrated you. A decision was made that you wish hadn't been made. Something is missing in our church that you wish was present. We may have sound and good opinions. We may have very good reasons to be frustrated, very good, but... On the basis of this passage, I want to encourage us to trust our church's leaders. By trust, I don't mean blindly follow, but I do mean sticking with them and praying for them. Sticking with them and praying for them. It is so tempting to get out of Dodge as soon as something happens that frustrates you or lets you down. It is very easy to become a backseat driver Rather than get out of Dodge as soon as something happens that frustrates you, as soon as you feel alienated, which happens in church life, I want to encourage us to try to make the job of our leaders, like Brian or our elders, our deacons, try to make the job of our leaders as easy as possible. Our elders and Brian have a difficult task of leading people. Let's pray for them. Let's aspire to make it a habit of encouraging them. And if we do have a complaint or a concern, it might still need to be said. But before we just go straight to the leaders, 
let's lift it to God and mention it to someone else first. That way we have time, just time to think about it and time to discern our own hearts. Honestly, I am fully aware that this point, the second point, trust your leaders, just doesn't land well these days. When many today are wondering what the church is even good for, when it seems like moral failure and church scandal are a part of a pastor's job description, it just doesn't seem appropriate to tell you to trust the church's leaders, to trust our leaders. I'm right there with the church skeptics. If the church is just another human institution like government or a business or a club, I want absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing. I would rather be shanking golf balls on the golf course right now than be here. There is just too much hurt and hypocrisy and selfishness to put up with. But if the church belongs to God and not sinful human beings, then there is nowhere else I'd want to be. Because what is happening here is not and cannot happen out there. I'll confess to you a mystery. God is more present here among sinners than he is in a perfect beach sunrise. For some mysterious reason, God makes it possible for his perfect presence to be mediated through imperfect means, through ordinary pastors and teachers who preach the word and administer the sacraments. God's living presence is manifested is made tangible for us. You know, my dad always had large diesel trucks that intimidated me. You could hear it turn on from 300 yards away. That was a direct impression there. Uh, one time, when we were out in the country, because we were, you know, country folk, we were working on a fence, and I was a kid, and we were moving spots, so my dad actually was going to let me drive the diesel truck. There was a massive hill, I thought it was a massive hill, right in front of me, and there was a, a fence post right here on the corner, and I'm trying to turn left. So I didn't want to go too far up the hill because there was a creek on the bottom, and I didn't want to die. So I'm turning left, but I cut it way too tight, and I just leave a beautiful mark on my dad's driver's side, just all along that fence post, just left a beautiful scrape. It was a lovely ride home. Sometimes church can feel like that. God gives us something of enormous value, the church, and we just drive it into a ditch. We just scrape it up. But that wasn't my only experience of driving. My dad also had a boat. And at times, when I was a kid, he would let me stand and put my hands on the wheel as he was really driving. Was I really driving? Sure. Was he really driving? Yes. That's what church is like. Church may feel like we are all kids trying to drive diesel trucks on our own, but that's not how it truly is. Church is more like the kids' hands are on the wheel while the parent is driving. And if that is the case, if the church and her leaders belong to God and are led by him, then we can trust God's leaders. We can trust that the perfect triune God is present even here at Lake Baldwin. Not only can we trust God's leaders, but we can trust the path those leaders guide us on. And this is what we're gonna see in our last point. We've seen trust his presence, trust his leaders, trust his path. Look with me again at verses 14 to 17. 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. We've seen in our passage the Lord's presence with Israel in the Ark, and the way that presence was mediated by Israel's leaders. Now we see these two things put in action. For God's presence and God's leaders were given to Israel for a specific purpose, to enter and conquer Canaan. Israel needed God's presence to enter into Canaan, and Israel needed God's leaders to aid them along the way. We see these two things working in tandem here. In verse 14, the people follow the priests as they're instructed, in verses 15 to 16, the priests walk up to the Jordan with the ark. All they needed to do was get their toes wet for the Jordan to stop at the city of Adam, which people believe is about 18 to 22 miles north of where the Israelites were crossing. God's presence is alive and powerful in this moment. And God's leaders and God's people are working in harmony. This is a high point in Jewish history. And it all culminates in verse 17, the flooded river that was impenetrable is now made into dry ground for an entire nation by the presence of the Lord to walk in. What I want us to see is the simplicity of these verses, the simplicity of God's power for Israel, used for Israel, and the simplicity of Israel's obedience to God. God had casted a vision for Israel, go and enter Canaan. And rather than tell them what to do from afar, he came down and cleared a path for them to walk in. Folks, that elicited Israel's trust. When they saw with their eyes the presence of God and the work, his works on their behalf, when they saw what kind of God he was and is for them, they could not help but respond with their feet. God cleared a miraculous path for them, and they responded in the only way they could. They walked it. Our takeaway is likewise very simple. We need to walk the path God has cleared for us. We do not trust God if that trust remains in our minds or in our mouths. We trust God only when that trust moves our feet. For us Christians, God does not promise to clear from our path adversities, difficulties, or suffering. But he has done something more miraculous than part a body of water. He has taken away our sin, both the power and the guilt of it. He has made once dead people alive again. God calls all of us who claim to be Christians to walk the path of those who have been freed from sin. That's going to look differently for each of us. For some of us, the head knowledge has yet to descend into the heart and into the feet. We can enumerate all of the biblical reasons why God is good, why he's trustworthy. But if someone were to look into our lives, hear how we speak, what we do, how we think, 
they might see gaps. We say God is trustworthy, but we're not that excited about it. We don't really talk about God that much. We say God is trustworthy, but we struggle to part with our money. We say God is trustworthy, but we are racked with anxiety that we are going to miss out on happiness in this life. We say God is trustworthy, but we have little to no track record of sharing our faith. Every believer has gaps in their lives, gaps in speech, gaps in thought, gaps in action. If you sense a gap, a gap in your life or a gap in LBC's life, and you feel convicted and you want to change, that's good. That's a grace from God. It is a grace to see our sin in the same light that God does, without excuse, with pure eyes. It is a grace to want to change. My encouragement to you would be to prayerfully ponder Christ. Pray to God. Ask him to make the love of Christ and his beauty the most real thing in your heart. Ask God to make Christ so beautiful to you that you will do anything to please him. Anything. You will part with any sin, no matter how dearly cherished. For others of us, the feet have been moving, but anxiously. We have been working hard to obey God. And that hard work, rather than enlivening us, making us more alive, has only crushed us with more guilt and insecurity and anxiety. If in quiet moments of lucid self-reflection, those moments we all have from time to time, if in those moments you look at all of what you've done for God and you ask yourself, is it enough? Is it enough? If that resonates, then let me say this. Trusting God culminates in moving our feet, but it starts with our eyes. It starts with us seeing and knowing and wondering at what God has done for us. We walk not in our own strength, not to please God by our own efforts, but we walk the path he has cleared for us. We obey God not because of what, I'm sorry, we obey God only because of what he has graciously and freely done for us. We follow after him not to get him to look our way, only, we follow him only after he has freely come down to us. You know, looking back, one of the central reasons I didn't trust my bosses is because they never had to suffer the consequences for their bad decision making. They never had to suffer for their own selfishness. They simply gave orders, they heaped burdens on us, and then they closed their office doors and they didn't have to feel the, the brunt of it. And I remember almost on a daily basis asking myself, what if, what if they actually made a bad decision and then had to work with us for a day and really feel it? Centuries after our passage, Scripture tells of another man who entered the Jordan River. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh, the better Joshua and truer Israel, went around conquering all of what opposes God's rule and reign on this earth. He healed sicknesses. He cast out demons. He illumined the scriptures and he forgave sins. But he also did exactly what my bosses didn't do. Exactly what 99% of bosses in this world never do. Jesus came down to save us who were drowning in a chaos of our own making. The chaos of our sin, 
the chaos of God's judgment on it. He saved us not by walking over our sins and crossing. He saved us by drowning. He saved us by drowning in the judgment of God's sin, um, judgment of God on our sin. He came down to our level, not to suffer the consequences for his bad leadership, but for our bad following. The path of Jesus did not wind and it did not bend. It led straight to Golgotha. But Jesus did cross the Jordan. He drowned in it and he still crossed. He crossed from our spiritual death to new life for all who trust in him. And because he crossed from death to life, we too have crossed today and we will cross. Because he died our death, we can live his life knowing that he himself is with us now and forever, living within us by his Holy Spirit. In other words, because the Lord of all the earth is among us, we can trust the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, the word made flesh, and we thank you for scripture. Lord, I ask for the spirit to apply what, your, what Joshua 3 is telling us. I pray that you would make us by your spirit on behalf of your son, people who trust you and delight in your ways. I pray that you would help us to see and savor the goodness of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, I lift up Brian. I lift up uh, this new diagnosis, this new burden that he has. I pray that you deliver him from constant pain. I thank you so much for his faithfulness and being here and still desiring to be with his people and with your people. And I do pray that you would help him, Lord, to walk this difficult path of being a pastor. And I pray that he would do so with faith, hope, and love uh, for your glory and our good. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son and the gift of your spirit. Amen.